Good evening, everyone. I'm Dr. Ramona Bishop, and I'm the visionary and CEO of Elite Public Schools. You're here for our very, very first podcast. And so we are absolutely thrilled, and we thank um, the chairman of our board, Pastor Jefferson, for allowing us to use his venue for this first one. Um, tonight is going to be his, the title of our podcast is Vallejo Past to Present and Future. And the topics that we'll talk about during this podcast are really related to elite, but more globally related to Vallejo and the context in which our young people are educated. So stay tuned, stay focused, like and share. And uh, we're going to talk until the talking runs out. We're not going to put a time limit because this is a packed set. So I would like first for this distinguished moment to introduce themselves to you. I could give their bios from memory because they are all friends. Um, but there are things about them that they know uh, that I want you to know. So they can introduce themselves to you, starting with um, Marlon to my left, um, Dr. Green. Hi, my name is Mariella Smith-Bright. Um, I'm a faculty member at CSU East Bay, Associate Professor of Educational Leadership. Um, but my real job is that I'm a moral for young men. Um, I live in the Elk Grove area. And I'm also the PI of the Great Migration Study, which is a study that examines the educational experiences of African American children in Northern California between 1910 and 1970. Thank you, Dr. Green. To my right is Dr. Quick. Reverend Dante Quick, I am the first administration formerly And I am currently working on Black mental health and Black faith while in the project. National Clearinghouse Thank you. And the chair of our board, Pastor Jefferson. I am Pastor Danny Jefferson, uh, pastor of the Rehoboth World Outreach Center Church here in the city of Vallejo, and uh, as was stated, the chair of the board for Elite, and very much uh, advocate for our, our community in the city of Vallejo. Glad to be here. Thank you. Um, so you know the story of how Elite came to be. Really, we're uniquely positioned to eliminate the opportunity gap. And we call it opportunity gap because achievement gap makes it seem like there's something wrong with our young people. Opportunity is given the opportunity all of our young people can succeed. So elite is uniquely positioned and created to eliminate the opportunity gap for black and brown students. Why is a school like this so important in Vallejo, but more importantly in any so-called urban community? Would you like me to respond first? I would love that as the education person. <laughs> well, I've been thinking about this question for some time. And I want to take us back historically um, to 1860. 1860, Vallejo, which should have been the, the capital of the state, established segregated. And so for a time, for a significant time, and if you think about the very beginning of the education system in Vallejo, it was segregated. It wasn't until 1911 that um, the schools became, we had our first African-American school. And it wasn't in Schoolhouse. It was in a hotel in downtown 
um, Vallejo. So you have black children being educated in a room in a hotel and white children who are educated in schoolhouse. So you already see this disparity happening. My grandmother, so my family is from Vallejo. My great-grandmother, my grandmother, they moved to Vallejo in about 1935. And as part of my study, I interviewed my grandmother. What she told me about her educational experience, break your heart, which is that she was called the N-word by her teachers and classmates. She was paraded around the principal's office with another teacher there and humiliated that rocks were thrown at her and she had to fight every day of her life and run home from school. But when I examined the educational experiences of other African Americans between 1910 and 1970 for my study of the Great Migration, I find very similar kinds of educational, foreclosure of educational opportunity. So what I find is that African Americans are steered away from uh, courses and college-going opportunities. They're steered into low-wage um, and service opportunities. We see black men missing from education altogether. One of my participants shared that she found a lot of her classmates in the mental health hospital and not in educational systems at all. Um, and then when you go, when you fast forward to the present day and you look at educational experiences and outcomes for black and brown students, you start to see that this is a legacy of the city of Vallejo. We have high rates of suspension, high rates of absenteeism, high rates of dropout, and low rates of literacy and numeracy, which means our children are not having access to educational opportunity. They're not being given the opportunity to even see themselves as actual, um, as appropriate for school, to uh, freedom dream, as Bettina Love talks about, to, to think about who do I want to be when I grow up? What could I possibly do? What could I contribute to the society? And many of our students don't even know how much their families have contributed to this community in terms of the economic development of the community, the cultural development. So I wanted to share that to kind of launch us off um, launch us into this uh, broad conversation about education opportunity. Briefly, black and brown children have never since the history of the founding of this city had access to equitable educational opportunity. You just dropped the mic. Uh, what can you say after that? You took us to school because with being uh, indigenous to Vallejo, a native, I had never now, we lived, but I had never heard that, but that was excellent. I'm so glad to hear that, and I'm sure our viewers, particularly those of us from Vallejo, uh, gives us great context of where we are today. And it's a shame that in, in 2023, we're still in the same boat. We're still in the same situation uh, where uh, one of the things I believe that elite does so well is gives identity. Because, you know, our identity is connected to our performance. Um, if our identity is skewed, sometimes our performance follows who we think we are and what others say we are. And uh, I can remember my own experience in school, um, which were many uh, negative things. But I remember them saying, well, you, you're not going to college. Maybe you just do something else or whatever. But my mother was a school teacher. She was about five feet tall. She was a powerhouse, small small in stature, but tall in 
everything else. And she said, oh, yes, absolutely. Everybody, you are Daniels. That was her maiden name. You are Daniels. At Daniels, we do this, we do that, and the other. So I had someone at home to uh, uh, encourage me and to kind of frame that identity. And I think that's what elite does. There's a need for elite because there is this absence that is in uh, the public schools um, of that identity. And so often uh, we are getting the wrong identity, which causes, uh, I think, an array of other problems. Well, you know, I think to work from a meta perspective, Vallejo, history of our nation and education brought examples given. Indeed, I think the importance of elite and institutions like it around the country is you cannot depend on liberation. That's right. And to connect the dots with what both of you have said, it, it takes me back to people like Franz Fanon and Paulo Freire. Um, a place like elite has to create new consciousness. Um, when you've been under oppressive circumstances so long, it can grind into the DNA low expectations. And it becomes self-enslaving. That's ingrained trauma. And so I know one of the things we talked about early in, in the formulation was the relationship between mental health and engaging in trauma-informed educational processes. We often talk about cultural-informed education, but when your culture has been steeped in abuse and neglect, you have to move beyond just what the cultural inform says to the trauma informed. And I think there is no doubt that the beautiful history you laid out, when I came to Vallejo, I got involved in these issues because there were children being locked in closets, <laughs> literally. Being locked in closets, um, there were teachers using the N-word. This is not 10 years ago. And when we saw the Trump wave that rode through our school board election, we had the same virulent racism. The other part that I would speak to just a little bit, speaking, thinking of Franz Fanon, is the sort of ingrained self-acceptance that some of our communities have had. That our battle to create elite was not just for the forces outside of our community. There were some inside of our community who benefit from being facilitators um, that their, their positions as propped mediators uh, help to maintain the status quo. And so there are times in which we have an internal conversation and an internal battle about what do our children deserve? And how do our children get what they deserve less we advocate? And when you have generation after generation that's been trained to stay in their place, someone like a Dr. Bishop or like a Pastor Jefferson, you need outside agitation. People with vision to see beyond what has been normalized. And I think that's the most painful part of not just what our city suffers, but of cities across the country. 
that we have normalized our condition. And in so doing, accepted the status quo. I think elite breaks that cycle and says we deserve better, we'll fight for better, and we deserve to see our own educated above the par. You know, a, a thought comes to mind as I'm listening to the theme of what you're talking about, um, and that's integration of school systems. Um, Zora Neale Hurston wrote a letter to the Orlando's, Orlando Sentinel to fight against integration of school systems. So can you talk about the impact that you believe integration has had on whether it's Vallejo or beyond? Was this a good idea? And if not, what should we have done to get what we wanted at that time? I'm going to start again. <laughs> um, I don't think the black community wanted integration at the time. They wanted um, equitable educational resources, um, but they weren't necessarily agitating for complete integration of schools. So we know that what it did, right, we know historically what it did was we lost a number of African-American educators and educational leaders. There's a generation that didn't get to lead schools and didn't get to, um, to share their wealth of knowledge, their love for education, love for young people, their history. Um, and so, I mean, that's a complete loss because now what we're talking about is how to get black and brown educators and educational leaders in school. Well, we when integration happened, there was an intentional firing or not hiring of us. And so um, that I think that's a particular kind of loss, but also the kind of cultural understandings and ways of doing school that were common to our community. Because black educators were from the community, of the community, um, they knew the parents. When you read um, Booker T. Washington, um, even though he's problematic in some ways, um, but when you read education books by uh, folks who were doing school during the time before integration, what you hear is that, um, what you learn is that black educators were in the communities knowing the parents. They were going, they knew the pastors, pastors, community, they were all integrated. It wasn't this separate system. And so oftentimes what I have to do with my own students is get them to understand the educational context in which they're teaching because they drive into the communities and they don't live there and then they drive out. Um, but before integration, we didn't have that. Your principal was from the community. He knew your mama, he knew the pastor, he knew the shop owners, et cetera. So we didn't, he didn't have to get this kind of, or she didn't have to get this kind of educational um, understanding because they were always part of the community and they were greatly and widely respected as well. Um, the children could trust them, uh, that they had their interests at heart. And remember, I told you the story of my grandmother. Part of her story is a story about integration. It's going to the principal's office, who she describes as a white Jewish man, but whoever he was, he humiliated her. And so this, this was not the kind of thing that was happening in black and brown schools at the time, right? So pulling a child out of school, um, sending her to the office, having her walk around. She describes it like being in a circus, 
like she was a monkey in a circus, fearful. And then, and you know, she had to go to the office. She didn't have a choice. Was integration helpful for us? Well, I don't think so. I'll just go on the record and say, I don't think so. I was educated in Oakland in high school, in a school much like elite. Um, I was uh, educated with a black principal, um, a black counselor, most of my teachers were black, and it was required for us to go to apply to college. Mm. There was this kind of black excellence that was going on that wasn't, um, that was so special to me. All of my classmates were smart. I wasn't some exceptional person. I think that's what's happened nowadays is when you don't have folks who understand that black people are smart, it's the parceling off of some groups of people. I'm gonna stop here because I know that y'all have more to say. You know, when I was listening to you, I was thinking about my own grandmother uh, who lived in Pine Brook, Arkansas and was a, um, a political powerhouse of her own uh, in the 40s. She was the state president of the PTA. She was the mother's mother, you know? And <clears throat> Governor Farbus at the time was the governor of Arkansas who was uh, a, you know, a tremendous advocate of segregation, um, was trying to um, deal with, uh, at that time it was Arkansas A&M, but it's now in University of Pine Bluff, Arkansas, and the, he was trying to fire the president of, of the institution at that time. And she and a, a lot of mothers came together and rallied around and, and rallied the governor's office and said, no, you're not gonna fire this man. You know, he's our person. And uh, story goes that he left him there in place. Um, but she often said that we don't wanna integrate our schools. And uh, I remember hearing my mother have this conversation. This, it was strange to me on, uh, with being a child of integration. Uh, and she said, we don't want to integrate our schools because our teachers are going to lose their jobs, just as you stated. Our principals are going to lose their jobs. And there's going to be this tremendous um, Gate or, or gap, if you will, of of all of these folks that are going to lose their jobs, and our children are going to eventually be the greatest losers. And so she was not an advocate for uh, integration. So has it hurt us? Uh, I I definitely think it it did, um, and I think that uh, uh, we didn't realize how it was going to divide us as a community. So now we're so, we're so divided as a community when we were more together. We're now separated. And I think that separateness now, everybody's in the individual. We don't see ourselves as a collective as we once did uh, when we were all together. Every man for himself. So therefore, it, 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 it's difficult to have a, a dynamic of unity to accomplish certain things because it's about what will affect my home. We're not concerned about other people. And I think that mentality came out of integration, which has certainly hurt us as a people. Yeah, I think it's a complicated question from a social science perspective, because I think you have to define who the us is, right? In, in, in the history of, of American thought around being black, 
and how we fit into society. We, the popular typology is accommodationists versus, you know, agitators, right? There were some who wanted segregation, I mean, wanted integration, and that was typically along class lines. And I think we've seen it play out along class lines, right? And, and so many, like Dr. King, did not understand the class issues early on because he came from a very upper-class background. Integration did not seem as odd to him. He had some exposure to folks already. Uh, even his future wife uh, at Boston University had, had already been in integrated spaces. So integration for them meant something different than, say, your grandmothers, who did not have access to resources and wealth. So we've got to go back to Du Bois and, and the difference between Du Bois and Booker T and, and how they thought black liberation looked, right? Uh, fast forward to today, many of us still don't feel that impact, right? We, we can send our children to certain schools and we can buy houses in certain neighborhoods. And so we see black flight, right? And, and, and so we've been co-opted by it a little bit. And, and I think in that regard, integration has served the purpose it was intended to serve for the people who knew they could take advantage of it. And I think we have to now look backwards and say to ourselves, who are the we now? Right? That, that even the we now looks different. And I, I, I struggle with this. When, when, when I look at where I sit, Right? and my own ethical responsibilities to my community. What are the benefits I have versus the people I say I'm working to free? And what am I willing to sacrifice to be in those spaces? And, and all of you all know that it's one thing for us to do late night basketball and to be here from 9 to 2 a.m. every weekend and to go back to a safe and secure home. That, that's different than the kids we leave and once we wave goodbye, they are steeped still in insecurity. And I think the problem with answering that question is depending upon where we're located in our micro context, it's been good for some. <laughs> for some it works, right? But if we don't see ourselves as this collective, if we take on Western sensibility, then we're going to answer that question differently. And I, and I take your point to be this. Um, I'm never comfortable, and, and we've said this before, if I don't love the kid that doesn't have my child's advantages, then that kid could impact me more than I can imagine or understand. And, and so we, we, we surrendered our status. Uh, in our early community, teachers, pastors, and undertakers were the most influential people in the black community, right? If you were a teacher, you had social status. And as I say now, no offense to, to my brothers and sisters who are plumbers, We'll, play, we'll pay a plumber three times as much 
as we'll pay a person charged with educating our future. And we've got to examine our common value. And, and therefore, elite, to me, is not a hearkening back, because our, our sort of political opponents will say, you just, you just won't let our people into your school which is not the case, right? As you know, black churches were always, we were formed because we weren't allowed in other churches, but we always opened ourselves up to them. White people could always come to a black church, right? And be treated with love. I think our schools are like that. I, I don't think anybody's put a sign up and said, no white people allowed an elite, right? I, I think what we've got to ask ourselves is what is our corporate responsibility to every child? And if we are committed to liberation, are we going to fight for children that are not in our immediate household with the same vigor that we will for children who are? I think that's the ethical question we have to answer now around integration. Where are we in the who? And what is our respective responsibility? In One thing that's coming up when you're talking is this idea of a separate us, separate black community. What, when you were talking, I was thinking about where are we in community with each other? Sometimes we're in the same schools, but we're often in community in so many other places. So in churches, in sororities and fraternities, in basketball and athletics. So we've never been like completely separated. But to your point, I think the neighborhood issue is real. And so those who could have moved out of predominantly black communities and have moved into more white and affluent communities. And so we're not in community in that way. And I think as someone who doesn't live in a mostly black community, but lives in a mixed community. Um, one of the things my husband and I have talked a lot about is how much we miss living amongst our people. And if we had that opportunity, what, would we do that? And we are very, very strong advocates for that. So this question about integration segregation means a lot to me too, because when we think about neighborhoods that were um, how black neighborhoods were and have been historically, you had a range of classes within one neighborhood. We're segregated into one space, but we weren't always living um, the same kinds of lives, class-wise and resource-wise, but we were always at the same schools and the same organizations. Um, and so I think that's what's missing nowadays from, from the black community, because we're still at church together. We're still doing all kinds of other things together, and we're still even in the same families. So there's not, I don't have to think about somebody else's kid somewhere who I don't know, an abstract kid. I can just think about my cousins, you know, my siblings, you know, their children, my nieces and nephews. Um, when I think about what happens class-wise when black people aren't in the same neighborhoods and therefore not in the same schools, it's a very um, personal um, question for me. I watched it happen growing up in Oakland when my parents moved to a more uh, more well-resourced neighborhood um, and my mother and I, I want to talk about why black people do that too. My mother growing up in Oakland, my mother grew up in San Francisco but moving to Oakland um, and having a poor education um, 
She didn't know fractions. That's how poor her education was. Um, she was really hell-bent on making sure that we didn't have that same thing, that we were well-prepared. And so she sent us from school to school and moved into a neighborhood where she thought we could have that kind of access. And so I don't think that when black people are moving, maybe there are some people who are doing this, but I think what, what's happening, what has happened is there's, they're chasing resources that have been denied um, in our communities. And so one of the I wanna shift that conversation to what resources are being extracted from black communities or not um, being uh, poured into black communities and why. And we can see that you know, with the city of Vallejo, for example, and communities like Oakland. I lived in Woodland for a time and I saw the difference in resources from one city to the next. Woodland next door to Davis and who, how money was being, re you know, we weren't any, um, we weren't any more deserving, but how communities either band together to provide educational resources through, through um, bonds and other measures, parcel taxes, through PTAs, who are fundraising. Um, and so when you, so those are the things that are happening. Um, and so black people who are moving aren't trying to get away from other black people, they're trying to provide education opportunity for their own children. And that's something that it really breaks my heart that we often have to leave our communities to be able to do that. Can I, 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 I love that, and I, and I think it moves us, if we can continue to nuance it a little bit. Because I, I think we can talk about faith institutions if we go to church together, and, and again, I, I wanna drill down to the we, yeah. right? Because I'm not sure we are the same that go to churches. There are, there have always been blue chip churches, right, and, and low income churches. I think we've been much more segregated by class than we're willing to admit. Because I think it's a painful conversation, right? I, I love being the pastor of First Baptist, but you know, we are a blue chip church. The pastor has a PhD, the members are lawyers and doctors, and, and, and there's a certain enjoyment that the members have of that, right? And that's throughout our church history, right? It's, it's Vincent Harding has noted that, right? That Du Bois has noticed that. When you, when you study our institutions, they've always had this classism to them, right? That causes some of us anxiety because I don't want to be known as such even though I want to live as such, right? So there's this, this triple consciousness, I call it, right? This, this triple consciousness, because there's not only Du Bois' double consciousness, but then there is this sense, and I go back to Fanon, in which we are all striving to be successful, but success tends to, in some ways, separate us from where we started. And when we look at our organizations, right? You know, when I got to New Jersey, people asked me, well, you know, are you thinking about the boule? Right, so I had to, I had to, I, I, what is the boule, right? You know, that, that, that's Something not, that, that, right? You know, and, right? And when I left inner city Washington DC and went to college, it was gonna pledge. I had not heard of fraternities and sororities. That wasn't in my, my local context, right? So each level up the ladder exposed me to something that then from my cousins, when I go home, oh, you thank you. 
you think you're smart now. You, you're educated. So, so there's this sort of internal, and, and I, and I want to, in our communities, there's things we don't say out loud, but we wrestle with, right? And I think part of what we have to do as it relates to mental health, and I'm going to keep going back to that, is in our institutions, whether we are in the upper class or middle class, because none of us are upper class. All of us are just two paychecks away from being put out of our house, right? Um, we, we've got to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be happy and healthy as an original question? No matter where we live, no matter where we went to school, or no matter how much, what does it mean to find fulfillment? And, and I love your use of the word community, right? We, we had this community all over the place, but our communities are shrinking, right? Our communities are shrinking. And we had a conversation before. Our churches are closing. Well, well, what churches are closing, right? Churches that were most deeply entrenched in communities of need and because the collective economics are struggling. So uh, the reason I love your story and I, and I love you going back to your mother and your grandmother is I think one major breakdown of our community is our responsibility to protect and provide for black And I think that's the primate beyond integration, our failure to support and protect black women has been the greatest disadvantage our community. And it's one of the things we committed to doing with elite and two black women who were under attack by a system. But, uh, you know, I just wanted to add as I was listening to you and thinking about uh, Vallejo in particular, um, as a child of the 80s, uh, <laughs> that was my, well, I graduated in, in 88, so I was at the end of the 80s. So as a child of the 80s, um, one, I think one aspect that we have not touched uh, a part of this uh, integration is it was generational. So. Even in the 80s, I can think of the principals, the lawyers, and all of these other folks that you're talking about were still in the black community. But they were the older generation. The older generation stayed. They didn't go to the hills. They didn't go to the suburbs. They didn't go to those other areas. But the children of those folks did. Uh, that would be our generation and beyond. <laughs> when we had an opportunity, and all of these wonderful homes and things were being built and schools were being uh, uh, created and built and, and opportunities that perhaps maybe our parents or forefathers did not have or did not select or choose. We chose them. So in some respect, we are part of that we too. <laughs> <laughs> we're part of the we, so we're not talking about somebody else. We're talking about us. <laughs> so, so because I can think about even my parents, uh, we were the first African American family in our community, and my mother actually moved out of South Vallejo uh, because she said we will have a tremendous uh, influence on him but we know that the surrounding area, the children that he's going to go to school with in some respect and this, this community will have even a greater impact. So we moved to the other side of town. 
Uh, but historically in the city of Vallejo, probably all the way up to maybe 90, uh, you still had that. But today, those communities completely look completely different. Not only uh, have the black community or those elite folks have moved out, but they've changed to others now. We, we have a different dynamic altogether. This community where this church sits does not reflect um, our nationality uh, as it once did. It's a whole different environment. So we see gentrification, we see all these other things that are happening. They, uh, our folks have moved out and these other folks have moved in and redeveloped these homes. You, you go into some of these homes and you say, wow, look at this place. It, it's, it's modern. You know, this house is the same house. They've gone and redone the kitchens and the bathrooms and, and other folks have moved in here and now the prices have gone out to the degree that many of our people are priced out of even this area. So. All of that is a part of uh, integration as well, but thinking specifically of Vallejo, I have seen what you've talked about even in this community all the way up to the 80s. So as a part of the we, I wanna talk about, before I move on to the rest of the questions, I wanna talk about how I got here. And I'd like the three of you to do the same. You've started to talk a little bit about it, but I'm gonna go backwards to my grandmother and grandfather maternal. Um, one a porter on the railroad and one a domestic. My grandmother ha went to school until she was eight and then she cleaned houses. Um, they had five children, my mother included. Every one of their children went to college from no education to everyone educated. When it came to me, there was not a choice as to whether I was gonna to go to college. It was just which college are you gonna to go to? You do that or you die. That's the two the choices you have. I remember my mother's decision to move from San Francisco. We lived in the Geneva Towers. They've been destroyed. To El Cerrito Hills. Why? education. And then when it came to us, my family, we owned a home in Oakland. We moved to Sacramento, around junior high for my girls. Why? Education. And so I count myself as a part of the we, and I think it was interesting that you challenged us to think about this idea of have you benefited um, from the system that has been created in our nation? Can you tell us your story? You made it. Every one of us is wearing some pretty nice shoes on our feet. That's where our students start. They go from here up. Tell us your story. How did you make it? What was the pinnacle for you? Well, um I'm a fourth generation Californian. Um, my family's been here a long time. My um, fourth generation on my mom's side. Um, my mother's, let's see, my great grandmother, we'll start there, Big Mama Hester, um, came from Missouri to uh, LA and then eventually up this way to, to um, Vallejo. 
and she dies in Vallejo in 1971. Um, I don't know how much education she had, um, but she was born in the 1800s. Um, she cleaned. Um, when I look up, I'm a hobbyist genealogist, um, and she worked for the Greyhound bus station. She's a custodian. Um, but she also makes moonshine, if you know that story. <laughs> and she's, um, she eventually buys a house. My mother said that um, she bought a house in Vallejo. I guess the mayor at the time was on her block, so they, they felt very proud of her. Um, my my great-grandfather, so this is my great-great-grandmother. So my great-grandfather um, comes here. Um, he ends up moving to San Francisco eventually, but he's here where this is where my grandmother grows up in part until um, she's about um, middle school age. So my family's here for many generations. My uncle still lives here. Uh, got a bunch of cousins around the Vallejo, Fairfield area. Um, I don't think anyone's in Vacaville, but general area. Um, but my mother, because my grandmother eventually um, goes to high school in San Francisco, and my mother grows up in part in San Francisco and then Oakland. And then when I'm born, I'm born um, in, I, I'm not born in Oakland, but I, I grew up in Oakland. So that's, and the, the way I got here is, I think it's three people primarily. My grandmother telling me from a very young age, um, because she and my mom had children um, before they were 21. Um, and so they didn't go to, they didn't go to college. My grandmother always told me you could get married and have babies when you can't do anything else, get your education. So she said that to me repeatedly over and over and over again. Um, and it was this kind of like, we, we believe in you, we see you, we think you can do it. Um, something that her own father started. My grandfather went to UCLA but never finished his degree. So he's got two years of college in the 20s before Jesse Owens is there. And um, I think he doesn't finish in part for two reasons. One is because the um, depression happens, and the other is because um, my grandmother is with child, and it's not feasible economically for him to do college and work and fatherhood. Um, but the other person I would credit get making it, you know, besides my the educators who helped me, is my mom. My mom had um, a poor quality education. She graduated from high school, went to some community college, but she always was looking out for different schools for me. So um, as a kid, they put me in the gifted program and she just kind of, I, when I would tell her something wasn't working for me education wise, she actually believed me. She always listened to me. And so she always, you know, if, if, if something didn't work, she found another place for me to be. And so I wasn't ever like stuck in a place. And so if I had to catch a bus or a couple of buses, which is what I did, that's what I did to get an education. And then lastly, my father. My father, who's no longer with us, um, was a tremendous man. He was the smartest man I knew. Um, he had gone to um, high school, went to college, went to an HBCU on the East Coast, didn't finish because he, as he would say, he's a self-proclaimed knucklehead but he always was there for me when I was in school. He was a whiz at math. And if I struggled with it, I could call my dad. But my dad also showed up at my high school. He, he was an older man, older than most dads. So when I would go to, to school, they would say my grandfather was there. He, you know, he had white hair like I have now in his 30s. Um, but dad was always just popping up. So I had to be there because if, 
if I wasn't there and he was there, it was going to be a problem. He had me write down my schedule of where I was going to be. But my parents were on me. I had loving parents. My parents were divorced, but they were um, really pushed education. And then in my neighborhood, my across-the-street neighbor, remember we were talking about the 80s? I'm a child of school in the 80s, too. I was like, we must be the, close to the same age. Um, when I was doing research for the Great Migration Study, I started looking at my own experience with the Great Migration. So across the street from me, I'll never forget this man, Grady Leatherman, would give me my neighbor, Grady Leatherman, who's from Louisiana. I was surrounded by the Great Migration on my block, in my schools, all the black people were great migrants. And he would reward all the children on the block with money for grades. So if you got an A, he gave you money. It wasn't really the money, it was the pride. It was like all these people believing in you community-wise. Um, and so, so the other great migrants were my teachers. I told you I went to a, a kind of a charter school um, for high school. I realized when I looked through, my social studies teacher, Mr. Solomon Wheat, who's no longer with us, he was a great migrant. He was an example for us. I could name all of my teachers and educators, every one of them great migrants who shaped my life. That's how I'm here. It's, you know, people sewing into me, and it's the, the thing I get to do as an educator at CSU East Bay. I get to sew into the future educators who then sew into the children and into the community. Well, I, too, am a child of uh, the Great Migration. Uh, my father came in the 40s, as most people did after during the war. Um, this West Coast was full of, you know, naval shipyards, uh, uh, you know, Air Force bases, and so on and so forth. And so that's how most African Americans came in, during the 40s. And so my father was in Ar Arkansas, lived in Arkansas, and... Uh, uh, had challenges um, for employment, and they said, "Well, there's uh, they're shipping people to Chicago, to Detroit, and to a place called Valley Joe in California." And uh, they said, "Where where do you want to go?" He says, "I think I'm gonna go to Valley Joe. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I'm gonna go to Valley Joe." And he got a got on a train. Didn't know anybody in California, as most people did who migrated to California. Uh, and the, the rest is history. My mother uh, was teaching in Arkansas and uh, wanted to go to UC Berkeley. I had an uncle here, two uncles here. And they said, why don't you come out to California and go to school at Berkeley? You know, education was free in those days. They didn't, they didn't have no loans or anything like that. You know, you, if you just wanted, if you could get in, you, uh, you could get your education. And so she came out and uh, started teaching at Portola High, Junior High School there in El Cerrito. And uh, so uh, I would say that she has been the major person who has influenced me. Uh, like your story, uh, there was no question about whether I was going to college, it was about where I was going to college. I uh, grew up with uh, cousins who were all, well, I was always the youngest person because my parents had me late in life. I, I, I relate to having older parents. My father was born in 1911, and uh, my mother was born in 1924, somewhere like that. So you can imagine, they, they were much older. And 
uh, in doing so, uh, they definitely wanted to make sure. Uh, one of the things my mother would always say is, is you're Daniels, it goes back to identity, and we that are on the West Coast cannot allow the Southern folks who are doctors, lawyers, and everything else for you not to do what they're doing. She was determined because it seemed like all the folks that came to California did not achieve, uh, which I think is another subject and another conversation. Somehow or another, we and black folks here in California, you know, abandoned in some cases some of our traditions and things that the folks back in the South did. Anyway, that's just my opinion. I'm sure there's some data on it somewhere. Y'all quote it for me. But uh, that's my history. My history is coming from uh, folks that came through the Depression and who migrated from the South uh, during World War II uh, and looked for a better way uh, for their children and grandchildren. And they inspired me to go to college. And so because my mother and all of her siblings, like yours, uh, her, my grandfather was a porter on the uh, cotton belt, uh, I think is something called something else now, and my grandmother uh, had 10 children. She didn't have time to go do anything with anybody, uh, but all of her children were college educated, every one of them, and uh, so they instilled in their children, which would be my generation, uh, to go to school, and so that's that's been my history. I feel like the odd person out. I'm not from California. Um, I'm the transplant, which allowed me to see California and Vallejo very differently. Um, I brought a perspective here that always made me a little strange in some way when we had these conversations, right? I'm from Washington, D.C., and uh, my family was primarily on the East Coast. I went to college in Atlanta at Morehouse. Education brought me here to do a Ph.D. And um, I think it was the drive when I got here to do the Ph.D. Um, I had children and had to, had to provide for them. But because of my interest, I always ended up in communities that were trying to fight through something to get somewhere. My first church was in the Tenderloin in San Francisco, right? And, um, you know, that was an interesting challenge. And I've always felt this need to be in places like that because my grandmother cleaned the White House. And the person whom the movie The Butler was made after lived across the street from us. And so I was raised around these older working class people who were cleaning places to send us to school. And they would always tell us, you have a responsibility. You're going to school because you have to come back and take care of our people. And, and so that's always been in my head, right? That, that whether it was Princeton or, or Atlanta or, or Berkeley, I'm not doing this for me. I got to go back. And that drove me to Vallejo. And as you all know, made it very difficult to leave. I, I, I agonized over that because I loved the work we did here. It, it gave me life. Not just because my children could take advantage of it, but because 
you know, when we were doing late night basketball, I felt like we were keeping one of these kids from getting shot. That every time a police officer knew, found out a kid's name, we were keeping that kid alive. And I could hear my grandparents, my, my grandfather uh, drove a cab and everything was racist to him. The Washington, he was a Washington Redskins fan and if the Redskin, if the referee made a bad call against the Redskins, it's because he was racist. And I'd be like, well, I'd be like, Randy, he's black. He's like, he don't like himself. You know, it was, it was all about race. So I, I, I grew up in a race environment, right? And, and I was educated, right? I was educated. You are a race person. And um, coming to California, um, I realized every mile of the Great Migration, this is my theory, and, and, and a couple of books have been written on this, we shed a bit of our cultural uh, DNA. So every mile we came, and the further we went away, those anchor institutions that taught us who we were, right, church and these schools where generations had been teachers, we were moving further and further away from that, and as we move further and further away, those anchor institutions became younger and younger. And as they got younger and younger, they could not communicate the same history. So when I lived in Georgia, where we went to school, everybody knew who their great-great-grandmother was in Georgia. And they knew what house they were born in. And they knew, when you get to California, history started in 85, right? And you go, no, that's not when history started. Where are you from? Right? And, and, and even the formation of churches in, in Vallejo, one church was formed because people who came from Texas went to Second Baptist, and people who came from Louisiana went to Friendship, and people went. So they gathered in their initial communities. We just didn't tell the stories. So generations came up who said, I'm from here. And that's, this is not where you're from. Where are you from? Who are your people? And I think that's the interesting thing about your question, right? A people without history are lost people, right? When your history starts today, there's nothing to anchor you. And I think it's important, uh, as you talk about your, your mom and dad and your grandparents, and, you know, all of us, we came from somewhere. And where we came from made us important. And nobody couldn't tell us we weren't important. And what saddens me is all the time we spent with our kids here, I spent in the camps, to hug people, hug kids, and they stiffen up when you hug them. And it, it brings you to tears, and you're like, what's wrong? And they were like, well, you know, I ain't used to people hugging me. Where, where'd that start? And, and I think we've got to connect family with identity and identity with progress. Yeah. There's um, a little bit of history into that why. So for many generations, well, I won't say generations, for many years, I didn't know the history. I just knew we were from these places. And so when I remember before my father passed asking him a story about his stories. Now, I knew a lot by then. I had done some genealogy work. 
But I think part of what's not being shared is the pain. Because what's unique about California black people is they were running from somewhere often. So if, you, if your people are in Atlanta, you didn't run from a thing. You, you're in the community, you've been there for generations. We went to Alabama in February to visit my husband's family. He's from Alabama. And they took us to the plantation, talked about the plantation they were from, we went to the family graveyard. I can do that on my dad's side. I go, I, I wanna be buried in Virginia, so if you leave this for posterity. Send me back to my family's burial grounds in Powhatan, Virginia. But black Californians, grandparents, I would say for now, our generation, because I know we're in the same generation, um, uh, our grandparents didn't want to share that information because it hurt. And so I, I, I don't want this conversation to be ahistoric because there's that pain, too, where when I asked my dad and he said, I'm not going to tell you this, he was... Um, covering his pain. I found out some things. I don't know his particular thing, but I know a lot of our family's story. And then, remember you were talking about black women? We're the griots and, and storytellers. I'm a storyteller, too. I think you can figure that out by now. I thought I put that on silent. Um, so in, the, in our tradition, we tell stories about our families. I know the history of, great, of Big Mama because my um, mother always told me that story. Um, we, we didn't drill down to all the details, but there was certainly this piece of like um, Missouri, Sedalia, Missouri, Big Mama and all her stories. My mother is terrific about that. She tells that Big Mama's been dead for 50 years and we still hear her stories. I guess what I wanted to say about that is just to remember that there's a difference between us in California and us in the South. And that's the fleeing and the erasure of that pain. Because, you know, our family escaped in the dead of night from Louisiana because according to our family, our grandfather got into it with a white man and fled for his life. He's not telling that whole story anymore. Because one, he's probably, I mean, he's not with us anymore, but likely he is, um, doesn't want to relive it, and then also isn't fully over that. So um, I think that's a special, unique thing about California black people. And then I, I want to say another thing about cultural ways. I don't agree with the assessment that we don't know where we're from and that we've lost all of it. I grew up not realizing how Southern I was. Um, until I really looked into what the, um, what the culture was. So I'm a mixture of um, Louisiana, Arkansas, Port Arthur, Texas. That's what my mother's family, we got the one Missouri, but that's not really what her family culture is. When I think about the food I ate, how they talked, all of these things, when I go back south, it's so familiar because it's what I grew up with. I am not a Southern woman but I have so many of those ways still, because who raised me were people who were raised by Southern folks. I don't have the accent, but I have the, under, you have the accent, yeah, yeah. Well, you got, your parents are from the South, right? Um, I don't have it, but those other, those other things are still with us. Even, you know, you think about whenever we get together and what were the restaurants we created out here? We had a bunch of southern restaurants, we had greens, we had all these things that, that are very similar. 
to what you would have had had you grown up there. When I study my great migrants, I went to one woman's house. In her backyard was a garden, and this is very consistent across all of the, black, the great migrants. They all have gardens because they're all growing their cultural food. And you see that for all the migrant groups. Any immigrant from anywhere in the world, they're going to look for their cultural foodways. They're going to, you know, you talked about the churches that they created, churches for Louisiana and Texas and Arkansas, which are the three big communities here. So I just gently push back on that because I think um, that historical context is important when we think about what California black is. I, I love the diversity of thought and um, the banter and the uh, moving back and forth with ideas that we have here today. It is, it is powerful. And to my students, I want to tell you, this is how you fight, right? Use your words to argue ideas. Don't let anybody make you think that you have to put your hands on someone um, to express yourself. Uh, argue ideas, issues. Um, I'm going to move to the actual questions, because that was, a <laughs> I took us uh, away from where we were going, but I think it lays a great foundation for what it is that we are going to talk about next. Um, each of you are parents, multiple children. Um, what is the best lesson you've learned about the importance of partnerships between school and home? And can you provide an example? Well, I have three children who uh, came through the school system here. One now is teaching at uh, Elite, uh, whom I'm very proud of. Uh, also very proud of them being HBCU graduate and educated um, in Atlanta. Uh, our philosophy in our home was that it didn't matter where they went to school as long as we were involved. We did not leave it up to the institution to fully educate our children. Um, and uh, my wife and I decided that uh, we would be very much invested and involved in their school from TK all the way up, which we were. So how did that look? That looked uh, like, you know, when they came home, you know, all right, it's homework time. Have you started your homework? Uh, those kinds of things. We would go and speak to the teacher, we didn't have to wait till, you know, uh, uh, school nights, but we would have active conversations, uh, how are they doing, and uh, even as a father, um, I would go. Uh, I remember having some conversations with teachers myself, um, making sure that everybody was straight and everybody was right, and so education is something that is hands-on, parents have to do that, and so often they do that at elementary level, but by the time they are middle school or high school, they drop out, they disappear. But we stayed there to the very end with our children because we were interested in their development. We wanted them to um, be treated fairly, and that was a part of us being involved uh, in, this, in the school system and their education. Um, I think I echo everything that Pastor Jefferson said. I think the only thing I would add is I didn't think that the school was their primary point of education. Uh, their house was their primary point of education. And so field trips and television and everything became 
a lesson that then was connected to what did you read in school today? And um, I know that they were they were born in a generation thirteen and, and nineteen now, fifteen and nineteen. Um, I wasn't born in a generation where I could carry a screen in my hand. They always had a screen in their hands. Right, yeah, you know. <laughs> cell phones were the size of, of cinder blocks, right? <laughs> so um, I tried to co-opt the screen. And so we watched documentary. And we talked about what does this mean to you? And so using the cultural thing, as a part of their education. So by the time they went to school, I'll never forget my son um, went to St. Paul's and it may have been in Oakland in you know, predominantly white private school. He comes home one day and he says, I had to explain to the teacher that she didn't understand something about black people. I said, oh God, it's just a matter before we get the email. Um, but all the way through high school, he would be frustrated. Because he realized, you didn't get that right about my history. I, I, and I, I think one of the things that it's important for me is, and that I think we should incorporate, is to ensure that our homes become points of education. Now, we talked about this with Elite, what happens when you don't have the, the formal sense of education, right? At a certain point, you, you opt out, not because you're not interested, because they've gotten to geometry and you can't help with that lesson. And um, we got involved in um, the prenatal program that we were doing in the county and, and trying to help parents understand that no matter what education you bring formally, you still have great influence in helping your child get tutored together, right? Don't feel embarrassed because your child has outpaced your formal education. So I think that's an important place, especially in, in low educational, low driven educational communities. Sometimes we're ashamed to let our children know we don't know something. And we gotta get past that shame and learn with them and not hide from them. I love all the things you said. Um, I'm a mom of four boys, um, ages nine through, my oldest will be 23 this summer. And during COVID, um, they were all at home and I was working from home. My husband was working from home. That was a, a struggle. Um, but one of the things that made it less so, especially this past year when kids were still um, online and then they went back into the classroom, was the relationship that we had with our children's teacher. And you, I think you were asking us earlier about um, this uh, relationship, um, collaboration. What I loved that happened with this one particular teacher was how responsive, how collaborative, how accessible he was. He had a website, um, he had uh, texting. I love that I could get on my phone and say, um, 
And we know that communication is really important when you're building these kinds of relationships between teachers and parents. And that wasn't what we had been experiencing in the schools. Before in schools, we were trying to find things, but so many teachers didn't have a website or web page or any information about their class. They wouldn't necessarily respond um, in a timely fashion to emails. If I called, uh, I was told they would get back to me, and they got back to me when they got back to me. But during COVID, what shifted was there was, they had to get back to you faster. And so they were coming up with all this or using technology in different ways. And last year's teacher was terrific. He, he was really in partnership with us, um, responding quickly to inquiries, um, sending uh, materials home. Um, he became my son's favorite teacher, one of ours too. We saw the potential for collaboration because of effective communication. And like you, I also, um, because I'm an educator by um, profession and training, um, in the beginning of COVID did a lot of um, supplementary education with my children because what was happening was um, just insufficient. I had a kindergartner and he was not gonna sit in front of a screen. <laughs> that just wasn't working. So we spent a lot of time as a family hiking um, going to museums before they closed. Um, I went to one of the last open museums, took a bunch of pictures, brought it home. We did art and stuff until it got to be too much for me to do. But we did spend a lot of our weekends out in nature as a family. We're doing that um, this coming weekend as well. Just kind of sitting down to dinner, just talking to folks. It doesn't matter if it's a single parent family, which is what I grew up in. I had divorced parents. They both sat us down, no television, nothing, just talking to us. Um, or if it's a um, two-parent household, um, that quality time listening to your children, talking with them, the rides to and from school, all that matters. Um, all that shapes who our children are. I'm really proud of my sons. Um, they're outstanding young men. And all of your children, I've not met your children personally. I have to put my eyes on them. But I know your children, I'm Pastor Jefferson, and yours, Dr. Quick, and just exceptional human beings. You've done a beautiful job. Um, so now I'm going to dig in, because we have grandparents and parents that taught us that racism matters, right? A lot of things have to do with race. And we're finding out more and more how much um, Florida is what I want to talk about now. Um, their attempts to control what is taught and how it's taught in classrooms, and their attempts to erase blackness, black culture, affirming black spaces um, within their state. So I'd like to ask you a question about that. Um, do you agree that it is important to standardize, and if you will, um, control what our young people learn in school around blackness, black culture, through controlling the bibliographies of the classes that they're in? Uh, should we control and ensure that every student gets just a standard, Americanized, if you will, curriculum? 
or should there be affirming spaces for black and brown students? What's going on in Florida and, and what do you think? Is it the right thing to do? I'll start this conversation because I know you all will end it. Um, <laughs> this thing called the woke uh, legislation is a spoof. It is a, you know, just the name of it is, is, is characterizing us in such a negative light. But I really believe that Florida is just indicative and a reflection of America. Uh, they have just codified it through legislation, but all of us, uh, most of us, came from a kind of a whitewashed history, unless you had black teachers or black educators to tell you something different. It, to be honest with you, I learned more about uh, black history in Atlanta in school, in college. I didn't know before the Mayflower. <laughs> I said, what? There were black folks here before the Mayflower? Uh, because in the school systems here in Vallejo, they didn't teach you that. You had no clue of that. So I, I think that, um, that Florida is just a reflection of America. And we know that the governor, um, even though he is now uh, declared a presidential candidate, is just being playing from the Trump playbook, um, and that is uh, to eliminate all of these cultural issues, uh, cultural teachings and, and identifications uh, throughout America, and uh, it is a very serious thing. And I'll end with this. Next week, I'll be in Orlando, Florida uh, for a convention all week. One of the things that we have challenged the leadership of the organization of my denomination we can't afford to pour millions of dollars in their economy while this type of talk. Now, see, we, we negotiated these, uh, these rates and all of this stuff prior to all of this becoming uh, national, uh, you know, because post-COVID, all of these communities are trying to gain more people to come in. But now we can't, with good conscience, go and spend our dollar our money in a place that is systematically trying to eliminate our culture and our identity. But I say that Florida is America. Uh, Florida is uh, kind of like the white backlash, which always happens when there's black progress, um, then there's a black, black uh backlash that always occurs systematically. Uh, we know that Obama, uh, if there was no Obama, there probably would not have ever been a Trump. You know, all of these backlashes. Anytime we move forward, there's always this pushback to take us back further than what we were before. And I just see Florida, uh, again, as America. So I think it's nothing new, but it's just so bold and brazen. Uh, what he's doing, and uh, but he's not the only one. Atlanta, Georgia, uh, not just Atlanta, but Georgia itself is also, they did the same thing. They followed it. They followed the same type of legislation. So you have a lot of kickback in Georgia now where they're trying to eliminate 
uh, black studies and black cultural things. So all the educators there are going crazy. They're going nuts. Tennessee, other states, Mississippi. Mississippi, who wants to live in Mississippi? Anyway, all of these, 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 these uh, Texas, all of our red states, our southern states are moving that way. And um, I think as a collective, we it's the only way we're going to be able to fight this thing is that we've got to get a part of the, be a part of the political process because the, we know that the politics is where the policies are, where they derive. And so it's important for us to uh, get involved there because if we don't advocate from that place, if we don't put the right people in place, in office, we're going to see more of this. see it in California too it's not I feel like it's not so far away we have districts in California who are who want us to get rid of CRT um, which isn't taught in public schools um, who don't want to who don't want um, educators um, educated in ways that are essential for our communities but what I want to say about this is is something a little bit different Florida um, is terrible, and you've said it, and I'm sure you'll say more. What I find interesting is how hungry educators actually are for the kinds of information that they're trying to repress. Mm. Um, there's a hunger. So I, I, reach, um, I teach at um, a university, um, and our program is centered, um, is grounded in um, critical theory. It's grounded in social justice principles. Um, and so everything we teach is through this lens of critical social justice. And as well, um, we're talking as a faculty about abolitionist leadership principles and how that might um, connect to our work as well in educating leaders of schools and districts and systems. Um, and students come to us, they say they come to us because they want that particular information and that education so that they can then understand and um, serve the communities in which they are leaders. So although DeSantis and others like him and of his ilk in California are trying to do, kind of prevent folks from that information, actual educators um, are really hungry for that um, and, desire, and, and seek out programs and, and opportunities for that. They may shut it down politically there. They're just going to go on the internet and they're trying to shut it down in schools so kids can't find this information in schools. Um, but there are resources across the nation who are, folks are putting together resources across the nation so that the children who are in these communities who are um, preventing them from, the, from understanding who they are and the histories of their communities um, can still have access to that information. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think it's, you know, this is a continuation. We're still fighting the Civil War that never ended. We know that uh, post-Reconstruction, a whole narrative was rewritten by the South. And Lee Atwater picked up on that with Richard Nixon. And we can follow the history of this. And as a person who studies race, um, I feel like two things have occurred. And, and it's a theme that I go back to why I thought it was important that elite be in place. You can never rely on a people to educate you who benefit from your ignorance. <laughs> so I, I think it's a false expectation to think that education writ large in America is aimed towards educating poor black and brown people. 
It's not in their economic interest. Poverty makes money. Um, and so nothing about this narrative is new nor surprising. It's connected to the prison industrial complex, right? I think what is different is, and this is for me is about consciousness, right? And, and access. Um, what is different is our churches uh, were created originally not just as places of worship, but places of education. And, and, and we bought into more westernized religion and turned into profit pimps over profits. And, and I think it has now boiled down to having pastor churches in low-income communities our responsibility, because I know better, I have to push through the resistance I get to educate. I didn't come to church to hear about politics. I didn't come to church to do this, right? Well, that's what you're going to get here, right? And I, and I think maybe about 10 years ago, I did a, I mean, I mean, a seven, eight years ago, I did a Bible study series in which we laid out five books that every black boy could read and five books that every black girl could read. And, and I taught bits of those books and, and encouraged my members to buy them. We've got to go back to self-educating ourselves because we can't take for granted what, what we know and what we're conscious of. We know from these children that we're working with every day, they have no consciousness of it. Right. And and to have for me now, we have a freedom school. Uh, we no longer meet on Saturdays. We we meet on Sundays. I mean, we no longer meet on Sundays. We meet on Saturday. And I have four Ivory League professors that are teaching these freedom schools. The class today is by a professor who penned black women in the Bible. And what my commitment is, I don't care if the public school tells you. I'm not waiting for them to tell you this. Come to me and I'll teach you this and I'll give you access. And, um, you know, when I was at Princeton and I worked with Cornell West, uh, the one challenge I had for him is, who has access to you? I'm, I'm privileged to have it, but the very people you talk about, do they have access to you? Now, what would it look like for you to retire from Princeton and go teach at Howard or somewhere else? And that didn't look well on my paper. You didn't like that. But, but I think we've got to now go back to this question of segregation and integration. We've got to go back to communities that don't have access to us. That's what's important about what's going on here, right? That I could hear the history that you've laid out that I may not be able to take your class, but now I've learned from you today. And it is free to everybody. I think the, the, the last thing I want to say about this is we still lag in the internet access. And um, that became more exposed for me when COVID came and we all had to go online. And I had members who said, well, I can't watch that. I don't have a way to watch that, right? And particularly my older members. And I was surprised by how many households with kids, right? And we, we face this in schools, right? 
it was no problem for my kids to switch online to school because we had internet. But anybody who has to pay Comcast or Xfinity and you got to pay that uh, $120 a month for internet access and you don't have it, they got triply hurt in COVID, right? So there's a number of things from a civil rights perspective that we need to be fighting institutions about to provide for our folks who still are on the back end of a lot of these resources. I wanna, I wanna ask my next question, and it seemed like you may have had a thought. I think you may be able to fold it into this next question. Um, and I was gonna ask it a certain way, but I'm gonna ask it differently through story. Um, in high school, I came through at a time where there were um, stay nine. So if you were in stay nine, one, two, and three, you tested in stay nine, one, two, and three, which is the lower segment, you had classes together. If you tested in stay nine, four, five, and six, you had classes, those mid-range classes together. And if you were in the higher stay nine, seven through nine, you had classes together. And so I ended up being, because I tested well, um, in AP classes, advanced placement classes. My mother really lamented the fact that I pulled myself out of those classes. Here's why I did it. Because none of the black teachers were teaching those classes, number one. Number two, because the curriculum content did not include my experiences, the history or the experiences of my people. I felt it, I knew it, so I pulled myself out. So I want to ask you, and, and let me do part two of that. Uh, I attended UC Berkeley, as many of you know. They have one of the premier African-American studies uh, departments in the world. And so it was then that I thought, oh, this is where I can be exposed to some of those individuals that write the book. I said, UC Berkeley does not hire the person that does not write an author and is known globally for these things. So Ishmael Reed was my mentor, is my mentor. Um, but long story short, it is then when the light bulb went off for me that I thought school can make an impact on who I am. I'm reading about more about my people. My parents did a great job, but I'm reading more about my people in school so all that to ask you the question, um, when did the light bulb go off for you? I know that you had the pleasure of going to historically black colleges. You grew up in DC. When did the light bulb in school go off for you? And what did CRT or any curriculum or professor have to do with that? I don't think the light bulb was ever not on because I was getting those messages. Um, from my mother and from my grandmother and my father. Um, and then because, you know, like I said earlier, I was um, in the gifted program, it was kind of always an expectation. But what got me moving forward, I didn't go to an HBCU, I went to Stanford, I went to a PWI, but I sent my son to an HBCU. And my, I sent my oldest son to Howard, and my second son um, is very interested in Morehouse, so I'll be talking with y'all about that <laughs> later. Um, what I remember one of the light bulbs um, in high school um, was when 
you know, I went to this school that's now closed. Um, some schools are terrific, but they don't have lots of students. So these small schools, Oakland went through an economic downturn and they had been trying to close our schools since the 80s, and they eventually did. But unfortunately, they don't look at the legacy of those graduates because if they looked at the legacy of the graduates, they wouldn't have closed the school because the graduates are now, um, they make the city proud, what, who, who we have become, what we've done, how committed we are to the black community, to our community of Oakland, to one another. We stay in communication. Um, but in ninth through 12th, sorry, 10th through 12th grade, I have these amazing African-American educators in my life um, and white educators who really, really knew their stuff. And so before you were asking us about culturally responsive education and what I loved about, um, so I had terrific model, role models of you know, what education could be and a lot of them did go to Berkeley and schools locally. I remember Mr. Wheat talking to us about going to Berkeley. So I had people who, I didn't have to look far to figure out how to go to college. They were my teachers, they were in my classrooms, they looked like me. They were always talking about their experiences. Um, I remember, how part of how I got to Stanford is because at some point I had shared, I don't even remember this, but it came out that I wanted to become a doctor, a medical doctor at the time. And so my counselor brought in this man. There were two, two counselors who came into the classroom. I was in my anatomy, physiology, or one of my science classes. And he comes in and he goes, oh, I want you to fill out this application. Just pull me out of class and you need to fill it out by tomorrow. It's for the Stanford Medical Youth Science Program. The program still exists. Um, most of its graduates have become medical doctors, not me. I'm the PhD, but I still, you know, I still got the doctor. Um, and these people knew me so well in this small school that they knew what I wanted and they brought the resource to me. They had me fill out the form. Um, they sent it off for me. I had an interview um, and then I got into this summer program that opened up what Stanford University was. I'm like, oh, I want this. Um, and so, and then part of what the program did, it was a summer program, five weeks on the Stanford campus. We took classes, um, you know, anatomy, physiology classes. We went to, um, it was just incredible. Look up smysp.org. Um, we had um, mentors. Each of us in the summer program had a mentor. I had two. Um, one, I think his name was Chris Flores. He's an MD now. But when I applied my senior year, so this program happens the summer of my junior year. My senior year, Chris, Christopher Flowers, that's his name, Christopher Flowers, um, I read my application to Stanford to him over the phone, mm -hmm. and he listened and gave me feedback. That's how I applied. That's what it was a black man who was now probably in his, I don't know how old he is, in his 60s, probably a black physician in, in process who helped me um, apply to college. The other person, this becoming thing, this, this amazing um, educator, was Joan Lavin. Um, Joan Lavin was my English teacher, and she um, she taught me in such a way that showed such love and interest and belief in me. Um, I'll never forget her bringing curriculum that looked like who I was to me. She introduced black feminist thought to me. She introduced me to um, Alice Walker. I read so much of this. I didn't even know what I was doing, but she brought materials to me. 
So the how you make it and going on to college and all of this, then it was never a thought was because all these people were bringing resources to my doorstep. I didn't have to like go to my counselor and ask because my counselor came to me. I didn't have to figure out if I was college material because the teachers were always talking about their college experiences as if we could do it too. The light bulb came in, uh, came on for me. <clears throat> Um, I started a, a program, when I say I started, I started to attend a program that was originally uh, an SAT prep program that turned in what was called uh, the, at that time, the Tanner Project, which today is called the Willie B. Atkins Program. Um, and Willie B. Atkins at that time was over special product projects in the Vallejo Unified School District along with... Uh, Nona Bowman and so many others that uh, were educators uh, at that time. And they started a college prep program here in Vallejo. We were the first class there and uh, end up going on a college tour. We were the first ones in 88 to go on that tour. But, you know, we had the benefit of this community of people that believed in us. Um, and the whole reason we would have this program was to prepare us for college. And, you know, I, I can think of all kinds of things. They talked to us about history, but they also talked to us about practical things on how to pack your clothes, uh, how to, uh, what it would be like to be in a college dormitory, uh, just so many th aspects of what it would. So our, our vision, you know, words are are visions or pictures. We could picture ourselves based on their conversations. I mean, you could see yourself. You couldn't see yourself not going there because week after week after week, we were uh, getting this these doses of who we were and who we would be. And that program um, was so instrumental. It was so instrumental in my life. Um, uh, to have this community uh, to uh, basically, you know, invest in us so that we would become um, successful adults. And I'm so proud to see even today that that program is still going strong. And I believe out of any program in the city of Vallejo, that one program is responsible for educating so many African Americans, so many of uh, the alumnus or alumni, rather, of uh, the, of the Tanner slash Willie B. Atkins program are doctors and lawyers and and teachers and educators of all kinds, and um, uh, it all started with Willie B. Atkins, uh, who was a man who uh, was incidentally the first black principal in the city of Vallejo, uh, who uh, came to an administrative role and did not just, uh, and that was another thing, and this would be going off the subject. Those educators at that time worked together. They had different alliances, different associations, uh, so rather they were, uh, regardless of which school you went to, they would come together and uh, synergize and figure out how they were going to help the test scores go up. I can remember, um, a teacher of mine 
uh, well, my mother talking to a teacher at another school, a black teacher. Well, you know, we know about the tests and we got the insight and whatnot. And uh, <laughs> they didn't have the answers, but they had the insight. And uh, uh, come on and, and let's, let's get these kids together. And, and, and they would work together to educate us and invest so that we would have high test scores and what so, so on and so forth. But, but, but my, the light bulb came on through the Willie B. Atkins program or at that time the Tanner program. Thank you. And your daughter is our Willie B. Atkins mentor for young people. Look at her there. Yes. Isn't that beautiful? Uh, again, I'm the Michael Gladwell example of an outlier. Um, I didn't have, I went to Washington, D.C. public schools. So the structures that supported you all weren't in place for me. And I'm dyslexic. So... Um, I was told by the school system that I was retarded. So my educational background is a little bit different in that um, my support systems came from my house. Didn't come from schools. They didn't. There was one teacher, Gloria Tucker, who came to see me at Morehouse, my fifth grade teacher, when I got to college. So I didn't have this sort of... Um, circle the wagons, you can do this. And, and as my mother tried to get me to better education, she sent me to, I went to a white military high school. And you know they were like, okay, you're gonna graduate, what are you gonna do next? It, it, it was not, you should look at this college. None of us, my roommate at Morehouse wasn't, uh, was, we went to high school together, none of us were, were brought to the office and said, apply for this. We were all said, you, you should think about the military. Right, so I, I had a slightly opposite experience, not only a learning difference, but a, a structure that was not pushing me towards something. My home did. And I think my, my first glimpse of it is I, I ran for citywide office and, and was elected to youth council member at large and got mentored by Marion Barry, who began a PhD, I think in chemistry incredibly smart man incredibly smart man um and he exposed me to harold washington and jesse jackson and i ended up in rooms with with all these men who gave me this moment right my, my moment didn't come from schools my moment came from walking with people who were like yo this is how you make a move um, i guess my academic moment came when i got to morehouse and I had never been surrounded by this many black people who were this smart. I had, you know, everywhere you looked, there was a black person who, and they were all the valedictorian in their class, and I'm sitting there like, yo, I, I barely got in, but you know, I'm here, right? I'm, I'm gonna take remedial reading, and then, you know. Um, being in that environment was life-changing. And it wasn't just Morehouse. Everywhere you looked, Spellman and Clark and Morris Brown, and all the professors were black. And they all looked like you. And if you missed a class, I remember missing a class, and he came knocking on my door like, where were you this afternoon? And I was like, yo, are you serious right now? And that is why I'm so keen on us educating us. 
right? And, and building institutions that see us. Because if you don't have the, the tremendous gifts at home, somewhere there's gotta be a place. What was it Gabriella today? Right? It was Gabriella today at the brunch who was like, I bounced from school to school and nobody would let me have a voice. But when I got here, I found my voice. That's why this is so necessary for those of us who didn't have the other opportunities. I have uh, two more questions for you all. This has been fascinating for me. I've learned so much. You're all friends, but I've learned so much today that I didn't know. So thank you. Um, I'm a public school educator. People would think because we're now a charter school that I'm a charter school educator. No, I'm a public school educator, and there's some powerful educators in all systems doing extraordinary work. One of the benefits of a charter school is that you have an appointed board. So our board consists of people like Tasha Johnson, who's in the audience, just a leader in her own right in the community, could be a, will be a guest one day. Our board consists of professors, you know, Vajra Watson, who is a friend of yours, um, who got early tenure or whatever it is, you speak that language, I don't, at Sac State. Um, our board consists of community people. You were a founding board member, Dr. Quick. And so because of that, I can come to this board and be challenged. You ask great questions and you're helping me build, but you challenge me. And I love that as an intellectual. Typical boards, public school boards, all you have to do is be, nationally, there are states where you just have to be 18. California, you have to be 21. You don't need to have any education. You can just be a community person. I wanna you know, run for school board. And so just talk to me about the politics of that, about the fact that anyone who is either 18 or 21 and breathing can run these multi-million, in some cases, billion-dollar enterprises called public education systems. What do you think about when you think about that? And then I'll go into the last two questions. Well, my experience here, <laughs> uh, and I can say it because I don't live here any longer, <laughs> so I'm real free, is um, everyone comes to a board with an agenda. In the elite board, you knew our agenda. We were all on common ground. I'm not sure if I bifurcate the qualifications based upon education in public systems of election as much as I do on um, intention. Public boards that are elected 
leave space for white supremacy to live openly and unabashed. As long as the person, whether they are 20 and a PhD or 30 and an imbecile, is not the primary motive. It's who can raise enough money and get you enough votes to get you in that seat. We know from Vallejo Public Schools that we had people in office who were not qualified to tie most shoes, but they were doing the bidding of other people because they were propped there. So I think the, the difficulties of a democratic republic, and it's a whole different conversation because I think we're misguiding and believe we live in a democracy, and we don't. The difficulty in a democratic republic, such as ours, is it's not merit-based. It's oligarchy-driven. And that's why you can have a Harvard-trained law review scholar by the name of Barack Obama be questioned as legitimate or illegitimate by one of the most narcissistic and ignorant individuals created in America's soil, Donald Trump. The qualifications are not necessarily the issue. That's what we've learned as black people. You know, from a mental health standpoint, I argue we put so much pressure on ourselves. You gotta be five times as smart as the person you're in the classroom. You know, we, we, it's well-intentioned, but it, it can be very pain, painful to have to represent a whole group of people everywhere you go, right? And to carry the weight of saying, I gotta work to represent everybody that's come before me. We now see from psychological studies that that's a tremendous form of trauma in and of itself. But we were, we, we were told to do that because then we might be accepted. And I think what we're discovering is that it's never been about how smart you are or how qualified you are. It's always been about how we navigate white supremacy. And I think the safety, I love Dr. Bishop. She's like a poker player. She has this ability to reduce herself almost to sucker you into making a bid you can't handle. You know, I'm not really an educator, you know. You, you all went to Stanford. I, I'm, I'm just a little public school teacher, right? Yeah, I, I love, I love that as if to make you feel good about yourself. Um, we watched you in two different settings, and and Pastor Jefferson can talk about this probably better than I can. We watched you try to negotiate a board with people who were not your intellectual peers. Their one drive was to keep black and brown students in their place. And I will never forget bringing 100 people to that boardroom one week. And uh, a, a young, an older white woman stood up to address you. And she kept saying, Ramona. Remember that? She kept saying Ramona. And um, people were like, Dr. Bishop. And she said, well, Ramona. And finally, we had enough. 
and we shut the meeting down. She was not going to make another comment. She was supported by the white supremacists on that board. Some of them were educated. The, the, the last thing I'll say about agendas is we know here that you got to be careful about the agenda of people with brown skin. Because <laughs> not all them have a black liberation interest. They have an interest of staying in office and being the mediators of mediocrity between the larger white world and black people whom they're supposed to represent. So that the qualifications, even for us, are not black skin and I went to, I got an education. The Willie Lynch in them is still real. The, the self-hate. So I think if there is a distinction to be made between a public board and a charter board, it's the incredible privilege of being able to find people aligned with a common mission that are willing to make common sacrifices, right? So that our early board were not, I mean, you had PhDs in education and you know, black college graduates, we were all scrubbing bathroom floors to get that building ready. We were all painting walls to get that built because we had a common vision. So that's how I view that question. And I don't know. You know, I, I mean, really can't improve on that because that really is the comparison and contrast between both boards. We saw how the other board operated so often, and it's so critical because whoever is over the board is about policy. They're policy makers. And our children are direct recipients of whatever decisions that they make. It also taught us that it was also important for us to be a part of the game. And that was to make sure that we also worked collectively to elect the right folks to sit in the right seats who would eventually make the policies for the children. But that became increasingly more difficult based on what you just said because sometimes those of us that looked like us were not really for us. Um, they were for themselves. Um, and uh, in a board like Elite, a private board, as you've already very well articulated, we had one mission. We wanted to make sure that this school not only existed, but that it thrived and that it not only met, but exceeded expectations. Uh, our only desire is to see these children educated in the best possible way that we could see that. Uh, none of us on this board uh, had any political aspirations because what we have found that many people in the public board, they really wasn't interested in the children. They were interested, it was a stepping stone. So I'll, I'll run for school board at this time and serve on the school board for maybe one or two terms, then I'll run for city council. And then if I run, then from the, to mayor and so on and so forth. So it was, our, they were rising on the backs of our children, which they had no concern about as much as their own political agendas. So it goes back to what you said. Agenda was, is really the difference in my opinion uh, uh, of the two different boards. I um, come from Oakland, so not Vallejo. Um, but I was involved in um, 
leadership in my high school at the time, back in the day, in the 80s. And I went to, I grew up going to school board meetings, being a liaison with the, to the superintendent's office, and then going to school board meetings um, for political purpose, to advocate for the, um, the continuance of my high school because they were trying to close it. And we would do the sit-ins and we would do the going up to speak and whatnot. And that gave me a terrific political education because I saw how invested folks were in closing my high school because it was deemed too small. But what was happening was black and brown children were getting wonderfully educated and doing well. And if you look at the alumni I said before, you're gonna see some incredible things. I think the potential of school board for people as young as 21 is tremendous because what I think about is the potential of young people who've recently graduated to then sit on the board and use that experience to then advocate for um, the best education, as you said, for the children in the community. I think there's tremendous potential for them. And so I would want to, I wouldn't want to see those, um, that number um, increased, um, but I want to see us put some resources behind those young people we all know who exist in our communities who have vision and commitment um, to getting them into office. And then to kind of using um, school leadership and, and community, sometimes people have titular leadership, so they have the title of the president, but then you have those social leaders who don't have any titles, um, but who everybody seems to follow. Those folks, I want them also sitting on the board with the folks who haven't been to school in 40 years um, and who don't really know and care about and don't understand the culture of and the challenges of the community. Um, I want our young people on boards more often and people, the parents who are, um, who've had some challenging experiences with education. I can get into the history of Vallejo and just say, for example, the city owes the black and brown members of the community um, an apology for how they've educated them and their children. Um, and these folks would be well placed to sit on the board um, because they know through their experience what the problems are and then where the potential for um, great work is. Thank you. Um, again, we're coming to a close. This is a big question. Um, so I'm going to ask you to meter your responses just time-wise, but it's still a big question. So if we have to um, go a little bit over time, then we will. Um, Elite has secured a multi-million dollar investment uh, to purchase a high school in the downtown area. And we're in the final processes of all the approvals um, with the city, but the money is there. The check is written. Um, we see this move as the beginning of the revitalization of downtown. I'd like to know your thoughts on the impact our high school can have, first on the downtown area and over time on the city at large. I don't know why I turned it off. I'll go first. Um, the, what we have the opportunity to do is, as you have already indicated, to revitalize downtown. Uh, this property uh, sits in a very strategic place near City Hall, near uh, other outlets like uh, the ferry system. So you have access to even folks from San Francisco and other areas that are coming in those areas. 
um, it's a it's a diamond down there, but it's also symbol symbolic of what I think sometimes we've thought about. It's it's not only a place of education, but it is a place of power, because education is power. It is a place that has the potential to uh, draw all types of uh, um, empowerment there. You know, we can do a lot, it's multifaceted. Um, but anytime you own something and you own it in a downtown area, um, you have just come to a place of power. And, and, and uh, I, I don't want to make too much of that, but it is influence. And um, I think that the elite students will um, be so empowered being down there in this wonderful facility that we're uh, working on. I'm, I, I'm so glad that we do have the finance to do it. Um, and we're just looking for the manifestation of it and for us to be able to walk through there. But it means more than just education. It means influence. Uh, you know, I think from a development perspective, um, anyone who has studied presence of successful large institutions, at least on the college and university level, recognize that they leverage public-private partnerships in revitalizing communities. Um, Dr. Jonathan Holloway, the first African-American president at Rutgers, um, Rutgers University entered a major and dynamic partnership with the Robert Wood Johnson Hospital System and Johnson & Johnson and revitalized all of downtown New, Brun New Brunswick around the university. And, and what that allowed them to do was to create a number of things. One, major anchor institutions. Our downtown needs an anchor institution. Right now it does not have one unless one's been built in the two years I've been gone. But, but secondly, uh, from an educational standpoint, it offers students the possibilities, not only of being financial contributors, but to be able to leave class and get a job, to walk down the street and go to get a job. Um, it, it allows access to resources that are downtown. Um, but then it draws other people, right? Um, having worked in community development, when I was a lobbyist for Atlanta Public Schools, what we realized is a major corporation is not going to come into a city where those children are not going to get educated. So if you want to attract Coke and IBM and Xerox, the first thing that their global executives are going to ask is, are our employees going to have access to world-class education, right? Because I'm not going to be able to recruit C-suite executives who can't send their kids to a good school. So, so that, that second, I think third is not a point that needs to be understated um, here in, in our city. Development has been driven by personality rather than the dynamic possibilities that diversity brings in any development opportunity. Imagine an elite downtown with corporate partners who offer internships and, and all those types of things. So from a development standpoint, it makes absolute sense. And that 
would be the miracle, right? Because um, to give elite that type of access for black and brown students um, is not on the top of the priority list for some in our city. Which, as a closing statement, I just want to say uh, uh, my most deep appreciation and admiration for the two of you for what is happening here, um, what the possibilities mean nationally in places where people for generations have been in institutions that have not served them well. This is liberation activity. This is what our great-grandparents dreamed about. And not only does it mean entering a system, it means co-opting a system. And it means a response to Audre Lorde's challenge. Can we use the master's tools to dismantle the master's house? And elite, I think, is a challenge to the negative answer that she gave to that question. And so I just want to honor um, you were doing this work long before I got here. Um, whether it's Osby Davis or anybody else, you have stuck your neck out for a lot of people to progress in this city. And... I'm a great admirer of you for that and appreciative that you opened yourself up to me to educate me. And I can't say enough about the underrated educator on my left. <laughs> um, you know, I, 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 I'm going to say this publicly every chance I get. Every major force in this city was aimed at breaking your will. Every major force. Angry because test scores were rising. Angry because children were graduating. Angry because expulsion, expulsion rates were going down. Angry because program, they were mad that grant money was coming. And, and took it away. But the effort to dehumanize you, um, to scandalize your name, to make you doubt yourself, would have broken a lot of people. You took that and gave birth to something that is graduating children tomorrow. So I can't give you enough respect and credit for that. Congratulations to both of you. You know, I always call Dr. Bishop the reformer. And no reformer in his or her time is celebrated. So often, unfortunately, it's after their passing. We don't want to wait till then. We celebrate you tonight for what is happening tomorrow. And so uh, thank you for your resiliency and for hanging in there and your tenacity, and we are looking for a great day tomorrow. You know, I want to take up what you said about, I want to take up what you said about um, the potential of downtown. 
um, and those partnerships, because that's what I was thinking about when you talked about where the school was going to be located. And so I sniffed around to see what was down there and what was happening downtown. Um, and, and clearly they have a plan in addition to what Elite is doing, and it's exciting. It's particularly exciting for me because I was thinking about, I've lived through this. I've lived through the actual partnerships that you're talking about. That school that they, that they closed had partnerships with corporations. I worked at East Bay Mud in high school, which is a terrific job. I didn't work, well, I did for a minute, but I didn't work for long at Burger King. East Bay Mud came up and offered me an office position and showed me what corporate life could be like if I decided I wanted to go that way. And so it was a visioning very early in my youth. I was 16, 17 years old, and I thought, oh, I could work for these people. I, again, people who had degrees, who were running um, divisions and whatnot, who wrote letters for me for college and scholarships and whatnot. Um, these are all wonderful potentials for the young people of Vallejo and something they deserve. It would be a reparation, if we may, for these young people and their parents um, who've not had what access to these opportunities in the ways that they should have. And so I, I love this idea of a downtown elite in partnership with the local businesses and albeit the, the larger corporations and the, the city hall and whatever else is there because assuredly you have young people who are interested in that. And given the opportunity, like my child had at Davis High School or Da Vinci High School, which was in Davis, where they had an internship coordinator whose sole job was to make sure that young people had internships. And you know what that looks like when they apply to college, right? Oh, look at this person, how involved they are in the community. They have the grades, they have the test scores, they have the recommendations. Look at what their letter of um, application says. And look at all these ac activities in the community. They would be well-placed in our school. Was, these are kinds of privileges that children are then afforded, that put them ahead of the pack when they apply to universities. I experienced that too. And so I love this idea of equipping our young people with every um, privilege that, that they've, we've never had consistently across the community. Um, and then this idea of um, elite in downtown is kind of a full circle. When I started the conversation, I started talking about where black people went to school, in a hotel downtown, because that's where they placed us. It's almost like I thought about that history and how interesting that would be to talk with them through that and even see what their family's connection would be from a genealogical historical standpoint, because probably they don't know. They may, you know, maybe some of their family wasn't there in 1911, because again, many came through the Great Migration in the 40s. Um, but some might be, we weren't, there were not, not zero black people in Vallejo in that time. There were enough to have a school. Um, and so I think that this would be a point of history return um, for the young people to kind of look into, to see you know, our, what our legacy in downtown has been. And I celebrate them with you as well. I remember when you were um, in Vallejo as superintendent and coming in, and the time you took to meet with me and the time you took to introduce me to your cabinet. And I remember when Vajra said, you need to know her, you need to study her, and I couldn't because I had a study going. So it's such a delight to be in community with you. Thank you all for celebrating her the way you did. Closing question. 
um, <clears throat> this panel has been about, and thank you for all, means everything to me. Um, this panel has been about Vallejo past, present, and future. Um, we graduate our first class, as you've indicated, tomorrow. Uh, Gabriela, you know, amazing. Today she said at the brunch, I felt muted by school until I got to your school. And it's a place where everybody affirmed and cared about me. And Gabriela is on her way to being. She can be anything she wants to be. She wants to go to Berkeley, so we're going to make that happen. The other thing that's happening, going to public-private partnerships, is we've connected with a group called Inroads, and what they do is do early internships for young people that are going into whatever they want to go into, whether it's the Googles of the world. All of the major corporations come to this group for their interns, and they watch them from high school going through their bachelor's degree and out into the world. Inroads will pay for 40, I believe it's up to 40, it went from 20 to 40 in the last week of our young people to go to Georgia this summer. They don't have to pay a thing. Um, and they're going to go to Morehouse. They're going to go to Spelman. So things like that are happening at Elite. As you think about Vallejo's past, its present, and its future through the work of Elite and through the work of any other powerful educator out there. What do you think about? What has been left unsaid um, today? And those are going to be serve as your closing remarks. You know, when I think about it, I, I, again, we go back to the context that you gave in the very beginning of 1911. And the struggle that black people had in Vallejo from that time and even beyond that time, one thing that uh, some people don't know about the NAACP is that our first, our, our chapters, our branch was one of the first branches, I believe it was 1908 was the founding, <clears throat> uh, which was very important. And so the struggle was very early uh, to have the need for NAACP in its kind of inception. Um, to come to 2023, the struggle is still continuing. Uh, there is no end to the struggle. And this is something I think that every generation must understand. There is no arrival. There's no place that we'll ever arrive. I think that I'll be fighting. And I think that generations and generations, we're talking about the future, will continue that fight. But I think the difference is, that they'll have an institution that they didn't have previously to do it in a different way and to come from a different framework. And I think that this genesis of this organization, of this institution, and the potential that it has for generations to come is unmeasurable. You can't put a, you can't quantify what it's going to do and how it's going to impact our community, but we can just know that the sky is the limit. Um, I think about when a major general went to Savannah to meet with a group of black preachers and asked them what they wanted 
uh, after the Civil War. And the black preacher says, we want 40 acres and a mule. They, they didn't want anything but the opportunity to succeed. And I think that's all people of color in, a, in our nation have ever asked for. We just want an opportunity to succeed. Um, I think what elite represents is two things. One, the birth of something out of what looked dark. That was a dark period in our city. Um, it was not just dark on the school board. We were dealing with police shootings. Um, we were dealing with um, rapid poverty. It was dark in every aspect. And um, even in our political situation, we were in fights with Fairfield and the people who said they were Democrats, right? We, we, it was just, yeah, we, we, were, we were fighting everybody on every side. And, and we were also fighting within ourselves. Friendships were being fractured. And so out of that darkness, something rose. And, and I think the story of the beginning of Elite is very important to be told. And I, I really think there's a lot of synergy between the downtown research and the hotel and, and the reoccupation of that building. I think the connection between those two points ought to be accentuated. Um, I am a believer, and I'm, I'm finding myself to be more Garvian as I get older. Um, I'm a believer that if you don't own it, you can't control it. And as we laid out today, it was the independent institutions in this city, you and other people that didn't have to take folks' money. Right? We could speak truth because our bill was going to get paid anyway. Um, it made me think, uh, the New York Times came and did an article, remember, and um, it was right before we got our, the first black chief. That was the fight we were doing. And um, I got a call after the article was published, and the reporter said, you know, Dr. Quick, I do need to ask you a question. I said, okay. He says, um, we got an anonymous tip that you were on the police payroll. And I said, well, I don't know who told you that, but can you make sure they send my check to the right address because I ain't got it yet. But it was a very important moment because the suggestion was that you can't, it's impossible in the American context to be black and to be independent. You got to be bought by somebody, right? It's impossible to be educated and independent and fight for unless somebody owns you. And uh, I said to this reporter, I said, you know, you work for the New York Times. I'm sure you've already done this research. He said, yeah, I know there's nothing to it, but I, they wanted me to ask you. I said, well, you've asked, and no, that's not the case, but. I'm willing to be bought if somebody has enough money, right? And, and he, he sort of laughed and I laughed. But what elite represents for the future 
is an independent place with a clearly defined agenda. And my prayer is that that's never sacrificed. That its sole goal is the intellectual development of a people who have been historically left behind and that whatever it takes to keep it financially invested in its own interest continue in perpetuity. And if that happens, it will become more and more dangerous in this context. And what we need is dangerous, safe spaces. And that's the future. What I'm taking away is the, um, the value of community um, and the history of community, the history of this town. Um, I don't have much to add beyond what you two have said, which is so beautiful. Um, my work really now with Vallejo is to capture the stories of the generation of great migrants um, before we lose them. So I'll just say that if folks want to contact me about this study, um, they can email greatmigrationstudy.com, um, I think it is. And you could probably put that on your website. Because I'm, I think it's really important to bring the history of the community back to the community. Um, I see how many times in the conversation we've referred back to that history to understand our present. I am a fan of yours, and so I think they've said everything I need to say. We want to thank each one of our amazing panelists. I'm sure that this is going to get so much attention um, because what you've lifted up and talked about is speaking to the heart and spirit and mind of a community organizer out there or a parent out there or an educator out there or a preacher or a superintendent or someone out there is listening um, to you and they've been inspired by you. And I, and there are students listening too. So they have your stories as examples of pathways that they can follow toward their success. So I appreciate each one of you friends, thank you. Um, thank you to each one of you for listening to our Elite Public School's very first podcast. This will be one of many. We will do one per month when we open school after the summer. If you're interested in enrolling your students at Elite Public Schools, we are filling fast. Every year we add about 100 students and we cap it. We're at about 80, so you want to get your applications in quickly. ElitePublicSchools.org. I'm Dr. Ramona Bishop. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.